you have a Bible, uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 5. This is week 5 of our series through the book of Acts called The Mission to Save the World. If you are new with us, what we do is we kind of work our way through books of the Bible section by section. Because we are in the book of Acts, which is largely historical narrative, story, we're taking kind of bigger sections, bigger chunks, so we're basically covering one chapter uh, at a time. Last week we began by kind of distinguishing between those passages in the Scripture that are hard to understand uh, versus those that are hard to accept. And so we said sometimes we read a part of the, a section of the Bible and we think, what in the world does that mean? I have no idea how to make sense of that. There, there are passages that are hard to understand. Uh, and there are other passages that are hard to accept. We, we live in what we might say a pluralistic world, uh, a relativistic world where there are all kinds of professing gods and competing saviors and so on. So we read a very exclusive claim by Jesus and we say, oh, that's, that's hard to accept in our day and age. Well, along with those passages that are hard to understand and hard to accept, this morning we come to a third type, and that would say it's a passage that is just plain terrifying. Uh, we read it and we say, okay, this is a very frightening story. Um, what do we do with this? How do we make sense of this? How do we organize our lives around the principles that we learn from this? Uh, and it's really a passage that doesn't seem to fit uh, with what we've been studying so far. The church is growing like crazy and God's bringing people to saving faith and, and the, the demonic forces opposed to the advancement of the gospel are heightened and yet the Spirit of God keeps doing miracles and freeing God's people to preach and, and again, adding people to the, the family of God. And uh, those who have been written off by everyone else are finding a place of belonging within the community of faith. And all that's going on, all these incredible things. And then we read the story that we come across this morning by Luke. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, also the book of Acts. And we say, okay, this is depressing. Like this is, this doesn't seem to fit with the, uh, the narrative as we've read so far. But through it, we're going to see really an incredible contrast, speaking of contrasts, between what it means to live in and with God's approval versus living for the approval of man. So uh, we're going to cover verse, uh, chapter 5. Again, I won't read the whole chapter, but let's, just so we establish the context, let's go back and begin with uh, Acts chapter 4, uh, verses 34 and following. Here reads the word of the Lord. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But... A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart. You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. 
The young men rose and wrapped him and carried him up out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. While the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So, again, a difficult passage. Let me begin by telling you what this is not about. Okay, first of all, this is not a threat by God that if you lie, you're going to die right away. You know, kind of you're lying, you're dying sort of thing. This is not what this is about. I can only imagine uh, the way this section has been taught in some Sunday school classes over the years where the Sunday school teacher brings out the flannel graph. You remember that? Puts on the flannel graph a picture of a, a church building and a, and a playground next to the church building and says, now, little boys and girls, this is what will happen to you if you lie. You'll be under the, the uh, playground somewhere. This is not what that's about. Now, now I'm not, God, of course, does not laugh at lying. In fact, He takes it very seriously and says, do not be mocked. Because I will not be fooled, God says. He's going to bring all of it out to, to light. So if you're lying about something to anyone or to God, now's the time to repent. But that's not what this story is about. If you lie, you'll die. The second thing this is not about, this is not a command for all Christians everywhere of every age to sell everything they have, take a vow of poverty, and give it all to the church. This is not about this. This was a unique time in redemptive history where this fledgling organism, the church, the followers of the way, again, the church is growing and expanding, and God is bringing people into the fold. And they're so committed to mission that what they say is, look, what I have, it actually doesn't belong to me. It belongs to the Lord. So here it is. And they push it right to the middle of the table, and they say, I don't want anyone to be without anything of need. So everything I have, here it is, my talents, my land, my money. They were so committed to the mission that they gave everything they had, and they gave it willingly. And that's an important distinction. It was voluntary. It wasn't coerced. They weren't forced. They, out of cheer and joy, gave what they had because of their commitment to the mission. Now, contrast that with what we see, this conspiracy that was hatched by Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, like Joseph, we just read about him, Joseph, like Joseph, they sold their land and they came to the apostles and with Ananias, with his wife's knowledge, he gave some of it, but he kept back a portion for himself. Now, here's the thing. No one told them they had to sell their land. No one even told them if they sold their land, they had to give all of it, all of it entirely. But they acted as though, they pretended as though they were giving it all. And Peter says they lied to the Holy Spirit. Now, just a little theological not, a side note for those of you who like theology, which I hope is all of us. Um, Peter says in verse 3 that they lied to the Holy Spirit. And then he says in verse 4, they lied to God. Um, and what we see is that even in the narrative passages, our understanding of God is informed. Here we see clearly the Holy Spirit is God. God is one, the Holy Spirit is one with God the Father. Now, we can speculate as to why Ananias and Sapphira did this. We're not actually told the reason behind that. 
But I think it helps us to consider this uh, transition word at the very beginning of what we know as chapter 5, this word, but. And what, what Luke is doing is he's, he's showing a, a progression between what happened at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. So at the end of chapter 4, we have Joseph selling his property, giving all the proceeds to the church, laying the money at the, the apostles' feet, and what happens? Well, he's given a really cool nickname. He's giving a very favorable nickname. The apostles rename him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. So here we are, 2,000 years later, and we still know that Joseph was nicknamed the son of encouragement. So that's pretty cool that he had that name that went throughout all of history. We don't typically get to choose our own nicknames. So when someone gives us a good nickname, that's actually a really good thing to celebrate. When I, uh, I guess, graduated from eighth grade and I prepared for high school, I was going to a very large uh, public high school, urban high school, and, uh, and as a ninth grader, skinny kid, nervous about what would go on. And, and I had to, in order to get to school, I had to walk to the bus stop, which was a few blocks away, and then take the bus to school. You know, not uncommon. But at this particular bus stop, there were a lot of rowdy and rough people. Just about every morning, people were smoking pot and doing drugs. There were fights. I saw one guy uh, chase another, get hit another guy with a, bat, a baseball bat. So there's a lot of stuff going on. And again, as a young ninth grader, um, I just kind of, a little bit intimidated by this, I just kind of stood off to the side by myself. Well, I didn't realize it, but apparently, as I was standing there, I, was, I would nervously smile. Well, this, uh, I guess, caught the attention of some of the guys, some of the uh, older, the upperclassmen. One guy came over to me, his name was Keith Allison, uh, lived a couple streets over, actually ended up dying in a drug deal gone bad. But on that morning, Keith Allison came over and said, why are you smiling all the time? I said, I, I don't know, I didn't realize I was smiling, I guess. What's so funny to you? I said, I, I'm sorry, like I, I didn't know I was smiling. He goes, you know what, I'm going to call you happy cat because of your annoying smile. Now, to my chagrin, this actually stuck. So my first year of high school as a freshman, oh, there's Happy Cat, which I didn't want. I didn't want this nickname. In fact, I, I don't, I'm going to regret telling this story because someone has already called me that in between services. Um, but, uh, but I didn't want that nickname. That was given to me. If we get a good nickname, that someone, you know, we, we, we celebrate that. That's a good thing. Well, here, Ananias and Sapphira were there when Joseph gets the nickname, the son of encouragement. So it wouldn't have been surprising for them to say, hey, listen, we want to be remembered forever. We want a building named after us. We want a cool, amazing nickname. So they sold their land and they pretended that they were giving all the proceeds to the church, but as I just read, they kept some for themselves. They wanted the reputation of being sacrificial without the inconvenience. They wanted the credit for being wildly generous without actually being wildly generous. They wanted to appear as though they deeply cared about relieving the, the uh, concerns of the poor. But what they cared most about was building their own brand. Their greatest offense was actually their hypocrisy. And I believe that's what so angered God. Here's our first point. Hypocrisy is a destructive force within the church that weakens the effect of our witness. If, if you've ever shared the gospel with someone and you, you have undoubtedly heard this objection, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with Jesus and, and I think he was a great person, but it's, it's his followers that I just can't accept. 
It's all the hypocrisy in the church. There was a book written, I believe it was the early 90s, as I recall, called They Like Jesus But Not the Church. And it was, it was, it was the detailing of a whole trend of people saying, yeah, I'm, I love Jesus and I'm, and I'm cool with Jesus and I'm pro-Jesus, but it's just the church that I can't get behind, this organized religion. And what they would say is because of all the hypocrisy in the church. People say they're one way, but they're really not. They act a certain way, but then on a, on a different day of the week, they, they're a different way. Well, remember, at the, at the time of the writing of this, this, uh, this book, the church is expanding and entire families, mom, dad, kids are putting their faith in Jesus. And of course, that's the last thing that Satan wants to see. That's the last thing he wants to see is the gospel being proclaimed and more and more worshipers of Jesus Christ. So what he tries to do is he tries to halt the success of the advancement of the gospel by persecuting believers. But that actually has the opposite effect. It doesn't work at all. In fact, God actually frees them from their constraints, and then more people come to faith in Christ. So what does he decide? Well, if I can't stop the spread of the gospel by persecution, what I will do is he determines to, to inject hypocrisy into the church, to weaken the witness of the believers. And so he appeals to Ananias and Sapphira and their, their, their jealousy, their desire for personal glory. In verse 3, Peter asks him, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Satan has been the grand orchestrator here. Satan is the manipulator. Satan is, as we're told in the scriptures, the great deceiver. But Ananias does exactly what he wants to do. He does exactly what he wants to do in pursuit of his own glory. Peter says Ananias has purposed in his heart to do this. The blame is on Ananias, not the devil. He desires the praise of men so badly that he's willing to plot and scheme and deceive and pretend in order to get it. Now, before we become too outraged or or too judgmental of Ananias and Sapphira, Perhaps we ought to consider the same tendency in our own hearts. Our willingness to pretend, our willingness to put on fronts, our willingness to to deceive in order to get, secure the praise of men. The great New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce writes, The temptation to seek a higher reputation than is our due for generosity or some other virtue is not so uncommon that we can afford to adopt a self-righteous attitude toward poor Ananias, let us rather take warning from his example. So regardless of how old you are or how long you have called yourself a Christian, we actually never get beyond, totally beyond, our desire for the praise of other people. We, we never get beyond our longing to be accepted by, approved by, recognized by our peers, our parents, our children, our co-workers, church members, whatever it is, we don't get beyond that. Everybody wants to be thought of as pretty or handsome or smart or funny or intelligent or witty or reliable or trustworthy or whatever it is. Now, sometimes we come across somebody in our lives and we think, you know what, he just doesn't even care or she doesn't care at all. They don't care what people think. Well, let me tell you something. He does care. She she does care. She may act like she doesn't, but she does care. It's why we pay such careful attention to how we look, our clothes, our body, our hair, 
It's why we hate telling someone no, because we don't want to be perceived of as the person you can't be trusted, who's not willing to drop everything and help. It's why we can't sleep if we know that someone doesn't like us, even if we've never done anything to wrong that person. It's why compliments can get us so high. I heard someone say recently, I could live for a whole week on a good compliment, but criticism just levels us, brings us low. It's why we, do, we nod in agreement with someone, even though we don't really believe what they're saying. We don't agree with them. It's why we stress so much when our kids misbehave, because you know, the, our reputation is, is on them, and so we, we don't want to be perceived as a bad parent. It's why we obsess over the number of likes we get on social media. It's why we let someone take advantage of us. We want to be loved. We want to be liked. We want to be appreciated. It's why some people actually go the nonconformist route. You know, we think that they're so bold and brash. No, they just want to stand out and receive attention. It's why we do the things we do so often. We might as well admit it. We want the approval of others. And could it be the, that the power we assign to them and their opinions is actually hindering us spiritually, relationally, emotionally? I like what Ray Ortland says, who's kind of, uh, he's in his 70s now, a, a advisor and guru for so many pastors. He says, the barrier between ourselves and revival is not our sins, but our smiling niceness, our love of appearances, our insistence on looking good and staying on top and always coming out ahead. Now, it has to be said, I think, that it's not the desire to be liked, the desire to be accepted, the desire to be loved. These are not in and of themselves wrong desires. These are not bad things. In fact, the desire to be known and loved actually goes to the heart of being human. So it's, it's bound up in the heart of being human. What is wrong is seeking that approval in illegitimate ways or from the wrong source. And because of our sin, this is a constant tendency of ours to present to the world a dressed-up, picture-perfect, Instagram-ready version of ourselves that hides, conceals our struggles, our shortcomings, our failures. And this, of course, goes all the way back to creation, or the garden at least. Adam and Eve, they covered up their nakedness because they didn't want their fallen selves to be seen by each other or by God. Well, what is the antidote? What is the solution? Uh, if, you, if you're reading the Scriptures and, uh, and you see something is repeated, repetition is a meaningful aspect, meaningful. And so we see two things here. We see this one phrase re repeated twice. When Ananias drops dead, and then three hours later when his wife drops dead, we're told that both events resulted in the same thing. Great fear came upon all who heard this. Everyone who heard this, everyone who saw this, everyone who became aware of this, feared God. And because they feared God, as we're going to see in just a minute, they were able to push forward with ministry, persevere in the faith, regardless of what they, others perceived of them or how they were seen. So here's our second point. The yearning for the praise of men, of course you can say women too, the yearning for the praise of men is quelled by the fear of God. The word quell just means to put a stop to something by a powerful force. The yearning for the praise of men, to be praised and received and commended by other people, 
There's a powerful force that can put a, put a stop to that, and that is the fear of God. Now, we saw recently in our Proverbs study that the command to fear God is actually rich with layers of meaning. On one level, certainly to fear God means just what it sounds like. It means to fear God, to be terrified, to be afraid of God because of His awesome power, His limitless glory, His glorious light, the one in whom there is no darkness at all. So that's certainly part of it. Now, it's interesting, uh, and those of you in the medical field may appreciate this, there, there, there's a lot of debate on this passage as to whether or not God killed Ananias and Sapphira, or they just died because of the traumatic shock of actually realizing they had crossed or offended a perfect God. In fact, one, I read one journal with one respected medical doctor who's also a Christian. He says that what they likely died from was transient heart failure due to left ventricular dysfunction after acute emotional or physical distress. Now, he has no idea, and I don't either, exactly why and how this all went down, but I believe... I tend to believe that actually God killed them, and this was not normative, as we see throughout Scripture, the story of redemption, but because of this church, which was, again, this fledgling organism growing and thriving and ministering and reaching people, God would not tolerate hypocrisy in the church, destroying the church's witness. So either way, I guess whether God killed them or they died in shock because they had rebelled against God, what's most important is answering uh, that question, is, is seeing the response of the believers and the others who had, who had observed what took place. Everyone was struck with the fear of God. Now, sometimes well-meaning Christians, and I've done this myself over the years, will simply make fearing God about respect. You know, even we say the word awe, respect. And, and that is certainly an aspect of it. But it's more than that. What do you think the people who saw their two, two people they knew saw them collapse and die and be buried out back? What do you think they felt? It was more than just respect. They were horrified. They were scared to death. They didn't know what was going to happen. So the fear of God, yes, it's respect, it's reverence, all of those things. But it also means recognizing God's power and glory and majesty in such a way that it causes us to tremble. Now, at the, at the most fundamental level, to fear God is to know Him as He truly is. To fear God is to know God in such a way that we are moved to worship by His sheer grandeur and unequaled holiness. To truly fear God is to know God not just in an academic way, not in a way that we might read about in a book, but to know God in a personal way, which can only happen by faith in His Son. Now, how does that help with our need for approval? You say, where, where are you going with all this? Well, to know God personally through His Son is to experience the greatest acceptance and the greatest approval by the most powerful and most important person in the universe, actually the maker of heaven and earth, the king of all creation. And it's not just God's approval as if He's sort of putting a stamp on us saying we've been accepted or we've passed a test. God's approval in the Scripture, God's approval for us in Christ is actually a reference to His divine affection, His love for us in Jesus. Now, someone recommended uh, the other day this movie, Tenet. You ever seen this? Um, we watched 
maybe an hour and a half of it, and it, it was just too, I kept asking my 14-year-old daughter, like, what in the world is going on? I have no idea what's going on here. And the way this movie was described was mind-bending, right? And it was, it was so mind-bending that I just had to leave and cut it off. My mind was too bent over it. But I, I, I quit that. But here's something even more mind-bending to me, that the God of the universe would actually delight in, take pleasure in us. You know, we're commanded as Christians to love everybody, even to love our enemies. And that's hard. If you have somebody who's wronged you, betrayed you, hurt you, it's very, very hard to love our enemies. But by the power of the Spirit, moved by the gospel, we can actually, we can love everybody. We can love our enemies. We can love everybody. But even though we may love everybody, it doesn't mean that we delight in everybody in the same way. We may love everybody, but frankly, let's just be honest here, there's some people we like more than others. Some people we want to be around more than others. There's some people, you come home from work and you see somebody's car in front of your house and you're filled with an unknown sense of dread. Like, oh, okay, he's here again, she's here again. So, you know, we, we, we love everybody. We don't like everybody the same way. We don't delight in everybody the same way. We don't take pleasure in everyone in the same way. There's some people in your life that I know hanging with that person actually exhausts you. You leave and you need a nap because you've been with them. Um, there are some people, though, that when you're around them, you're actually energized by them. You leave and you just feel on top of the world. My wife had, uh, a couple weeks ago, had breakfast with one friend and then went right from there to lunch with another friend. And she came back and she was just like, I am just so filled up emotionally right now with two people that I love and I delight in. And this is what happens. We, there's some people that just actually energize us. You, you, you delight in them. They bring you joy. When we go visit my parents in Middle Tennessee, it doesn't matter when I tell them get, that we'll get there. You know, I have four kids and you know, two teenagers, and so we don't usually get there when we say we will. Um, sometimes it's a half hour late, you know, sometimes four hours late. Um, but it doesn't matter. Whenever we get there, they're always, they're always out on the front porch waiting for us. It could be like 15 degrees. They don't care. They're so excited. They're watching down the street waiting for us to come up. And as soon as we get out of the car, of course, they walk right past us and go right for their grandkids and hug them. And they're so excited. They take such a great, great delight in them. Well, would you believe, if you are in Christ this morning, this is the way God feels about you. He's watching down the street, waiting for you to show up. He takes such great delight in you. Not only does He love you, He takes great pleasure in you. I came across a sermon last week by Charles Spurgeon, which really blew me away. I, I, I read a lot of sermons by Spurgeon. I'd never seen this one before. It was preached in 1859, January 23rd, and it was called Christ's Estimate of His People. Christ's Estimate of His People from Song of Songs. And as he explains the text, here's what Spurgeon imagines. He's explaining the text. Here's what he imagines Christ saying to the soul of the believer. Thou hast praised me, I will praise thee. Thou thinkest much of me, I think quite as much of thee. Thou sayest my love is better than wine, so is thy love to me. I mean, that, that's, that is mind-bending to me. That the God of the universe would think so highly of us that he would actually delight in us. And if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've come to the end of your own rebellion, 
your own self-salvation efforts, if you've trusted in the cross work of Jesus, the one who lived for you and died for you and was raised for you, then you've been made new. God doesn't see any of your sin. He's not looking at your past. He actually delights in you. He loves you, and He can't wait to be around you. That's pretty amazing. Now, if that's true, and this is the witness of the Scriptures, if that's true, particularly the epistles, if that's true, then does it really matter what someone else thinks of you? Does it really matter what your coworker thinks of you? If the God of the universe delights in you to such a degree, does it really matter what someone in your past thinks of you? If you are loved by that, in that way by God himself, the recognition of this type of affection that God has for his people, the living God who is worthy of our worship and fear, the recognition of that type of affection, when it gets to the level of the soul, which is imparted, poured in our soul by the Holy Spirit, it actually mobilizes us to continue on mission, to share our faith, and to live confidently even in the face of hostile opposition. Well, after Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead, the apostles would continue their ministry. And again, God's bringing people to saving faith. P- people are bringing everybody they know who's sick. Everybody who has any sort of ailment, disease, whatever it is, and, th- and they're healed. In fact, there are a couple people that, that are brought, and th- none of the apostles even talk to them. But Peter's shadow, his shadow, as he's walking by them, falls on these sick people, and instantly they're healed. That's the power of the Holy Spirit at work there when the church is expanding and so on. Well, God enables them to do some incredible things, and of course, the church is growing, and the religious leaders of the day are saying, all right, enough! No more talking about Jesus. No more talking about the resurrection. No more of any of your preaching. So they, they bring them before, they bring the apostles before them again. They throw them in jail again. Again, the, the God delivers them miraculously. And the religious brass are they're absolutely beside themselves in anger. So they bring them to the council again. Look at verses 27 through 32. Sorry here. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers, and I love you, you wonder why we preach Christ here all the time. This is the pattern of the apostles. It's the pattern of Jesus, the reformers, whoever you look at. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So they say, stop preaching Christ. And they go out and they preach Christ. Now look at uh, verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council. God works again in an incredible way. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Someone has said that so much of our lives comes down to our perspective. Do we look at our circumstances, our lives with a spirit of gratitude? Or do we look at our circumstances with a spirit of entitlement? 
Do we tend to look at beauty? Do we believe the best about people? Do we, do we look for the good or do we look for what's ugly? Do we see the worst? And so this is a matter of perspective. Here, consider this perspective. These believers are suffering. They're being persecuted, imprisoned, beaten, and they see it as an honor. They see it as an honor that God would entrust to them the privilege to suffer for Jesus' name. Because in doing so, they are participating in the sufferings of Christ. Now, of course, not to the extent that Christ would suffer. But through their suffering, they are united with Jesus in a way that almost nothing else does. And they provide an example for the church to follow. Do you know, I don't know when this is going to happen. But there will come a time, and I think it's soon, when being a follower of Jesus will bring upon even greater scorn, greater ridicule, and certain persecution. There will come a time, I believe, when for me to get up and proclaim Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation will be labeled as hate speech. And I don't think it's that far off. Generally speaking, it's important for us to realize that God has placed authority over us. And what are we called to do? Honor, respect, pray for, and obey that authority. Government, law enforcement, parents, teachers, bosses, pastors, whatever it is. But all of those authorities come under God's authority. The ultimate authority rests with God. And when men forbid what God has commanded, or, man, or men command what God has forbidden, we're left with only one option, and it's the same one the apostles had. We must obey God rather than men. Now look at verse 42. I love this. You think they were dissuaded by the persecution? And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Here's why they continue with such boldness, and this is our final point this morning. There's freedom in the fear of God. Therein, all other threats are rendered temporary and limited. This is the very thing Jesus would say when he sent out his disciples, Matthew 10. He says, look, it's going to get really, really, really bad for you. You're going to be thrown in prison, and you're going to be beaten. And your own family members are going to turn against you. And your own family members are going to betray you to such a degree that they're going to drag you in to be killed. But he says, Jesus says, don't fear man. Don't fear the one who can kill the body. Fear the one who can send body and soul to hell. In other words, look, what, what can they do to you really? Your life is just a vapor, it's just a mist, it's going to be here for a while. Yeah, they can throw you in prison and they can beat you and they can even kill you but you're going to be in my presence with me forevermore. So what's the worst it can really come to? It says, when we fear God and we know God as He has revealed Himself to be, therein lies the freedom and the recognition that all other threats are rendered temporary and limited. Now let me, I'll wrap up this morning. I'm going to give you two examples of this, two illustrations. Several years ago, I guess it's probably nine, ten years ago, uh, there was a young lady, her name was Ashley, she was 19 years old, she started coming to our church, this is a different church, a church's college group, and 
she was there one week, and then she came the next week, and she was invited by a friend. She came the next week, and after one of the discussions on the Scripture, she realized that she was actually a sinner, that God is holy, that He had sent His Son to die on a cross to remove her guilt and shame. She put her faith in Jesus. Now, her parents were professors. They were sort of self-professed intellectuals. You know, they're the real uh, intellectual type and, and so on. And they said, and she said, she came up, she said, Mom and Dad, I've, I've put my faith in Jesus. I've become a Christian. She said, now I want to get baptized in obedience to Jesus. They said, no, you're not going to get baptized. In fact, you're never going back to that church again. Not to college group, not to Sunday morning. They were, they were kind of practicing atheists and again, thought of themselves as more brilliant than everybody else. And they said, no, you're not going back to that church ever again. So she's 19 years old. She faces a dilemma. What do I do? She met with me and another pastor, and she, we talked through it, and she said, here's the thing. I know, I know enough about the Bible that the Bible tells us to, to not forsake assembling together, the book of Hebrews. We're supposed to gather together. I know that the, enough about the Bible that God wants our worship. He, he calls us to be part of a people and, and work together and love and serve. And we said, well, you know, we know you're, you know, you're supposed to honor your parents, generally speaking, but you must, must obey God rather than men. So you need to be part of a church, be part of a believing community where the gospel is proclaimed, where you can be loved and shepherded and so on. And she said, if I do that, I have nowhere to live. We reached out to a few families. There was a young couple in their mid-20s, been married about a year, and they said, we're glad to let Ashley live with us while she finishes college. She moved in with them the next three or four years, lived with them. She was part of the church, grew like crazy. Her faith was strengthened. Her joy was increased. Her parents all the while said, no, you're dead to us. She had to obey God rather than men. Let me give you another example. There's a man, and I can't tell you his exact location, somewhere in South Asia. His name is David. Uh, I have a picture for you. You can see what he looks like. Uh, he was a longtime devout Hindu. In fact, he was one of the leaders of the Hindu religion. His wife came down with something, a terrible illness, and was deathly ill. And so he started praying to all the gods and the goddesses, and you know there are thousands in the Hindu religion, for her healing. She just kept getting worse. There was a lady there who was in her 70s, and in this area, there's hardly any believers. There was a lady there who was in her 70s who, was a, who had been a believer for about 20 years, had been reached by a missionary, and so she went over and she started praying with David and for David's wife. And shortly thereafter, there was a turn in his wife's health. She started to improve. She started to get better. And then she was fully healed when it seemed like there was no hope. So she, David started talking to this lady, and this lady explained to him who God is and who Jesus is, and the only one who was raised from the dead, and, and David put his faith in Jesus Christ. Well, in that culture, in that area of the country, you can't be a follower of Jesus, at least not an outspoken one, but there was nothing that was going to stop this man from telling people about Jesus. So the authorities, some radical Hindus got a hold of it, threw him in jail. His wife went to deliver a meal. They said, no. This is not where you get sort of three square meals a day and you have a TV in your room. There was nothing like that. So he had nothing to eat. His wife brought up, they said, no, we would rather him die than hear him profess the name Jesus. So he's wasting away to nothing. Somehow he's released. While he's in prison, in jail, these radical Hindus burned his house to the ground. There's nothing there. He goes back, he kneels in the ashes where his house was. He doesn't even know if his parents, his, his, his wife and kids are still alive. He's not heard from them in months. He praises God. 
for his salvation. He praises God that he has a hope for the future. And this man was so on fire for the gospel, ended up planting four churches in that community. Thrown in jail again, beaten. Now, you can't see the picture now, but his eyes, his eyes permanently messed up. Beaten, abused, imprisoned. But he, what did he say? We must obey God rather than men. They said, no more talk about Jesus. He said, how can I but tell people about the one who has saved me? When there's an understanding of who God is and who we are to Him, there's a recognition of the magnificence, the majesty, the power of God. But not just that. The delight that He takes in us. And it leads us to understand our worth is in not, not in what we can accomplish, not in who we belong to, not in our family, not in somebody else's approval of us, not in what we possess, not in what we can do, not in what someone else has done to us. Our worth is firmly and inextricably linked and anchored in the love that God has for us in Christ. May He enable us to experience this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, comfort us this morning with Your words. Empower us this morning with an understanding of who You are and who we are to You. And for those who are outside of Christ, those who have not turned in faith, they're not you don't delight in them. They are under your wrath. They're not reconciled to you. They are wandering far from you, destined for destruction. But to them, the invitation is here this morning. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. To receive the forgiveness and the new life that is promised to all those who believe. Father, will you impress upon our hearts, even our very souls this morning, how cherished we are to you in Christ. And remind us this morning that our worth is not in what we own, what we've done, what's been done to us, what we can do, anything like that. Our worth is in the fact that you know us and love us in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.